0: Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your pastor, Philip Jackson. Good evening. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I come from a big family. I forget what stories I've told you and what stories I haven't, so forgive me if you've heard this one already. Um, but I have... Uh, I've got two older brothers, an older sister, and then there's me, and then my brother Stephen, and then there's a, there's a seven-year gap, and then my parents had three more children uh, later on in life. Um, and uh, some of you know Grace, my baby sister. Uh, she's pretty great. Um, the uh, So us us older five kids, uh, back when mom and dad were just starting out and extremely poor, we were uh, crammed into little bitty spaces, and uh, one of the things that I had the privilege of doing was sharing a bed with my oldest brother, Aaron. And uh, I was not a particularly large child, I was, I was small, and uh, he would sleep, we, we had bunk beds, he and I would sleep on the top, and my older brother Adam and my younger brother Stephen would sleep on the bottom. But one of the hazards of sleeping on the top bunk is uh, that you can fall, right? And uh, one of the things that happened was that uh, periodically throughout my childhood, my older brother Aaron likes his space, as oldest children tend to do, and he would spread out himself over the bed. And I was just small enough to slip underneath the guard railing and fall. Many times. This happened several times, actually. I, uh, I stutter sometimes, but that's, that's okay. Um, no, I, I remember distinctly, uh, I spent a lot of my childhood with a black eye because I would fall and I would inevitably hit my face on the bottom bunk. And uh, one time that I do remember, uh, I was sleeping in my bed and uh, all of a sudden I was falling. It wasn't a dream. It was very real. And uh, I smacked my head on something hard. And I just remember sitting on the floor screaming. uh, Terrified. Until I see the door swing open and the silhouette of my father, come to the door, and then reach down and scoop me up and then uh, love on me, check on me, make sure I was okay. One of the things that we deal with in our generation is fear. We deal with fear all the time. In fact, one of the things that I have come to realize is that we live in the most fear-saturated generation in the world. In the history of the world, actually, in my opinion. Um, It it started for me in 2001, whenever I saw 9-11 happen. I was 16 when that happened. Saw the planes fly into uh, the towers in New York. And from that point forward, there was a shift. There was a shift in the world, and there was a shift in the United States. And everything was driven by fear. Up until that point, there were news stories, and there were things that happened that, you know, you have political uh, people trying to drive agendas, and so they were trying to garner up support for this issue or that issue. But that was, to me, that was the moment that shifted the world to where everything became life or death. We can do this or we can't do this, and if we don't, we're going to die. If we don't do this and we do this, then we're going to die. And everything became so extreme. And we have marinated in that for over 20 years now. Some of you have never known a life, a world, without this kind of uber-saturated fearfulness. You are micro-targeted online with ads and with newsreels. You are... Um, bombarded with messages from politicians and from organizations that want you. They either want your manpower, they want your money, or they want your they want your mouth to, to, to spread their message. And one of the things that I've realized is that for us as a people of faith, we need to understand what fear is, and we need to understand what God's Word says about it. Now here is something that, that is, has taken me a long time to understand, is that fear... Is not a fruit of the spirit. Fear is not something that is from God. Fear is actually something that is the exact opposite from God. In fact, if uh, we're going to look at, at the, we're going to to our text here in a second in Acts chapter five. But one of the most profound things that that has written that has been written in God's word is in the is in Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy. This is the last thing that Paul has written to his protege. You guys know this verse, but I want to read it to you. He says, bear in mind, this is the last message that Paul ever wrote. And he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of a disciplined mind, one of the things that we have to understand is not just in our generation as young, as young adults, but also we need to see this also for how it, how it really is, that fear is a disconnected reality from knowing and understanding the love of God. The love of God, the perfect love, casts out fear. Scripture tells us that that when we understand who God is, we understand His relation to us, His perspective, that it changes the way that we see the world and it changes the way that we see our life. So when we find ourselves fearful, we need to understand and we need to acknowledge that we are operating, our mind is operating separate from what God designed for us. So that doesn't mean that when I am fearful, I am living in sin, but what it does mean is when I am fearful, it means that I am not acknowledging who God is. And I need to stop. God's Word tells us in Philippians that we should be anxious about nothing. But in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, we should let our requests be made known to God. The idea is that by taking our our broken, fearful perspective to God, what happens is He shifts it and He changes us to where He protects us. The last part of that passage is that, that uh, that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. What we're going to look at tonight is we're going to look at the, uh, the principle of walking in confidence. Now, let's go back to my analogy about when I was a child. Now, the thing that gives me, gave me confidence was that my father showed up. My father opened the door and he scooped me up in his arms and he loved me and he, and he, and he uh, nurtured me and he gave me confidence and security. What what would happen if my dad never showed up? What would happen if I go through that trauma and I sit there in a dark room with no perspective, no understanding of what happened, no comfort, and I just marinate there? I would become insecure, would I not? I would become anxious about my surroundings, what's going to happen next, might get up and try to find my bearings bumping into things and causing more hurt. This is an illustration of what it means to live in the world and not understand that God is one who protects us and He and He nurtures us in our difficulty. What happens is that we live in a generation that is that is, that is characterized by trauma. Everything is all about trauma, but never about the solution, which is the truth of God's Word. If we don't go to his word what happens is that we end up hiding in a dark room hoping that we don't get hurt again and in a in a in a aspect of self defense we lash out at other people. The phrase hurt people hurt people is a reality. So we have to understand that God has a design for us. Now I want to give you guys a little bit of perspective here. Now, the first thing is that Scripture tells us in other places that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful, that it avails much, that it proves much, it provides much. Now, if you remember several, several weeks ago when we looked at the first part of chapter 4, we saw Peter and John walk into the temple and we saw them uh, reach out to a man who was, who was uh, crippled and God healed him. And that led to this massive disturbance in the temple and they both were arrested. Now, as they come before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they're commanded to not speak the name of Jesus in public anymore. But remember what they prayed. Remember, they didn't pray for safety. They didn't pray for comfort. They didn't pray for traveling mercies or hedges of protection. This is what they prayed. This is in Acts chapter, chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, take note of their threats, talking about persecution, and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They prayed for confidence. They prayed for boldness. They prayed that God would provide them with an opportunity to be able to do incredible things for the sake of the gospel and not be afraid. What we're going to see tonight is an opportunity that God provides. He's going to answer their prayers. He's going to give them the, uh, the divine opportunity, the privilege of being able to live out a real live example of being bold. One of the things that we need to understand is, is we tend to pray for things and we it's like once we say them, they're gone. And we don't stick with it. We don't sit there and train ourselves to hear God and to see things from his perspective. We're just throwing up, I want. It's like we're mailing letters to Santa Claus. They're gone and we forget what they are. But we need to remember that prayer is the most powerful thing that we have. Because what it does is it frames our perspective to see things the way that God sees them. And so they prayed that God would give them boldness. We need to remember that God answers prayers. And what happened after the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira that we looked at last week, is that God provided this opportunity? Remember, last week we looked at Ananias and Sapphira. These two people who who came to Paul to Peter and they said, "Hey, we sold this piece of property. We want to we want to give all of it, quote unquote, to God." And so they they provide a small portion of what they had what they had made on the sale of their property to deceive Peter and to deceive the Holy Spirit, and God struck them both dead. Well, after that, obviously people started paying attention. And so what we, what we began to see through the early church is that they had all things in common, they were supporting each other, they were meeting each other's needs, they were loving on each other, and they were supporting each other. And they were, they were proving what Jesus had prayed, that people would know them by how they love each other. Well, naturally, this causes some tension because you start to see this movement grow, you start to see all these things start happening, and God begins to show himself in powerful ways. And wouldn't you know it, religious leaders would get jealous. So we're going to start our start our lesson tonight from Acts chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17. What's going to happen here is that the religious leaders are going to see all of this movement that God has been moving in the hearts of the people. These, these backwater fishermen are, are, are on the east side of the temple in Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch, and they were teaching about who Jesus is and what he's done. And people are flocking to them. They're flocking to them and they're seeing God do incredible things. And the religious leaders find themselves looking around. Now imagine this. You've dedicated your whole life to something. You get up to go to work. You are one of the most prestigious people in your town. You are one of the wealthiest people in your town. When you walk by, people lower their heads and they look at the ground out of respect for you. You walk into the temple to do your business and to teach a discipline that you have been studying all of your life, only to look around and not see any students. No one wants to hear what you have to say. And instead, they're out there on the outside listening to some backwater, uneducated redneck who doesn't know anything about God, supposedly. That's the situation that we're in. Starting in verse 17, it says this. It says, But the high priest rose up and those with him, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public in a public jail. But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple without, about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and those uh, with him came, they called the Sanhedrin together, even all the council of the sons of Israel and sent orders to the jailhouse for them to be brought. Okay, hold on, let me pause for a second here. I'm not doing a very good job telling the story because this is pretty intriguing. So back to 17. We're going to start with a boldness that leads to criticism. So first, the high priest gets all of all of his posse together. There's the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I'll explain that here in just a second. And they decide: you know what? these people are doing too much they are they have too much of a following now in ancient palestine there were two primary religious leaders in the community of of in the jewish community the first were the pharisees the pharisees are important because the pharisees are the blue collar religious leaders these are the guys that talk to the middle class they're the guys who who are out doing the the, the most of the of the um, spiritual guidance for the, for the people of God. And what they're doing is that they believe not only to the law of Moses, the Torah is God's word, but they also believe that the interpretations of God's word uh, are also um, important. They want to make sure that they're living as godly as possible. Here's why they're, why they are significant for us to understand how they penetrate into the story. So we know that that the people of God were conquered several times over by different empires over the years, right? So what happened was that over a series of generations, they began to lose their identity as Jews as they get swallowed up by these other nations. And so there was a group of religious leaders who got together and they said, we need to remind our people who we are. So they set up a network of schools uh, called synagogues. And these were, were the primary mode of educating Jewish children. Think about it like, think about it as public schools, right? So they set up all these schools around the nation, and the Pharisees would travel. These teachers would travel from school to school, and they would they would teach the children about God's word, about God's law. These synagogues were the places where Jesus would go and do his ministry. He would challenge the religious elite, because this is the place where people would come to learn about God. So the Pharisees were in every nook and cranny of Jewish culture. They were the authority for the regular guy. Okay. Now you have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the wealthy. They were the aristocracy. These are the ones who only lived primarily in Jerusalem. They only cared about the temple. They didn't, they didn't care about any traditions or, or uh, the, the opinions of man. They said the Torah is all we need. The temple is all we need. They loved being in power. They loved having their money. They made most of their income off of temple taxes. So they had a very political position. So the Pharisees are out doing business and doing doing ministry with the regular people, and the Sadducees are over here hanging out with all the rich people. Well, The Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't really get along. In fact, they really hated each other because they had such a fundamental difference in how they they saw uh, the responsibilities of God. So they only aligned themselves together for one purpose, and that was to kill Jesus. So what happens is these guys get together, the Sadducees, and they're filled with jealousy. They see their political power starting to wane. And so they arrest the guys. And they bring him in. It says that they uh, put them in a public jail. They put them in general population. Um, what's interesting is that they, they, they arrest all of the apostles, presumably all 12 of them, instead of just Peter and John this time. And they throw them into public jail. Thinking that this is going to be something that they can they can uh, maybe diminish their spirits and they can they can oppress them in some way to break their their uh, zeal for the gospel, throw them in the general population with all the rest of the thugs and criminals. But the problem is that they get into this place and sure enough, an angel shows up. Their public scorn turns into a public scene. It says in verse uh, verse nineteen that during the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison. Taking them out. Look at what he says. Verse 20. the, the, The angel of the Lord gives them a charge. He says, Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Now, notice something here that the apostles have been publicly arrested and they've been imprisoned, but God makes a point to put them miraculously back into the public eye to illustrate the false power of human authority. That these Sadducees thought that they were in control, they're the elite, they're the powerful. We're going to teach them a lesson. We're going to show them just how strong we are. So they put them in jail. Only for God to show up and spring them like that. But notice that they're not pulled out of their criticism. They're not, they're not pulled out of their oppression for their own comfort or even to just go their way or to go into hiding. They are pulled out of this their discomfort to stand and to speak the whole message of this life, talking about Jesus. This points back to their request for boldness. Imagine that. You've just been arrested, uh, wondering what's going to happen. Okay, the last time that this happened, they, they just turned us loose, but there's a good chance that they're going to beat us this time. They might even put us to death. I mean, we know that our master got crucified because of what we're doing. So what's going to happen? Well, an angel shows up and he springs us out of jail, but he doesn't tell us to go and hide or to run to the, to the hillside. He tells us to go and preach. God doesn't release us from situations for our comfort. He provides them for our testimony. The idea is that when, when, when we are in the middle of a struggle, we, we tend to pray, God, relieve me of this problem. Relieve me of this situation. God, make things new. God, I pray that you would just, just give me some relief. Please deliver me from this. But what this teaches us is that God does not provide obstacles for us, merely for us to be able to come to Him, for Him to take them off of our shoulders. God provides us obstacles so that we can turn around and we can lift up the testimony of who God is. It's not about relieving pressure. Chasing Jesus is not about relieving the difficulties of our life. It's about looking for ways that we can elevate him no matter where we are. The the apostles understood this. They understood God's bringing us loose, not because we're going to try this again tomorrow. They go right back into the lion's den to preach the gospel again. This should be our mindset as well. That boldness leads to a criticism from others, but it also builds our confidence They felt confident that they were the ones in control because God had done a work in their life. God had spent months and weeks building up their confidence. They have seen people be healed. They have seen people's lives change. They've seen people done miraculous things all for the sake of Jesus so that they could have the confidence to walk right out of that jail cell and go preach the truth to the people here's something that's profound for us to recognize, that those who think that they are in control can only operate to the degree that God allows them to. If you're in a situation where you think that you are, you are. Um, there's no way out, understand that you are not operating in godly wisdom. If you think that you can man- manipulate and control your life to the point to where you can make God do what you want Him to do, you are solely mistaken. God is all powerful and he only allows things according to the revelation of his grace these religious leaders thought that they had everything under control the prison was secure and the guards were standing outside the doors and yet the apostles walked right out the door god had made seeing eyes blind and hearing ears deaf believers need to recognize that we're not operating under human understanding but we're we are walking in the confidence of who god is The second thing about this is that we should work within the confines of our situation, but we should never lose sight of our divine resources and purpose. There are a lot of believers in our generation and generations past who spend more energy looking for obstacles as an excuse to disobey God than they do looking for opportunities to speak the truth of the gospel. Well, I guess I can't go on that mission trip. I don't have the money. Well, I guess I can't talk to that person uh, about, about the Lord because, you know, I'm running late. Well, you know, I just have this thing I gotta do, so I guess I can't do what God told me to do. There is a there is a massive, massive lie from the enemy that obstacles are justification for disobedience. And that is patently not true. It would be easy for these for the apostles to say, Well, you know, we just got arrested, and you know, I just I don't think that that we can. We could go back out there. You know, they're probably going to arrest us again. What are they going to do this time? They're going to be more mad at us. But they don't, they obey. Before the religious leaders could figure out what happened, they realized that the fishermen were not hiding, but they were preaching. Look at these next couple of verses. Um, verse 21. Upon hearing this they entered into the temple about daybreak to be, and began to teach. Now when the high priest and those who came who were with him came, they called the Sanhedrin together, called for the council of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the jailhouse for them to be brought. Now imagine these guys. They're all they're all decked out, right? They got their fancy clothes on, they got everything, everybody's got their no face on. They got their RBF face on. They're like, okay, now send them in. And the guards like uh, sir, sir, I'm uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but um, uh, here's the thing: they are not there. What? Look at verse 22. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, "We found the jailhouse locked, quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but we opened it and found no one inside." Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about, what, uh, about, uh, about them as to what would come of this. They were like, hmm, that's weird. Where could they be? Look at this, verse 25. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, But they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Imagine that conversation. Imagine Peter and the other apostles standing in front of the people, the people who just saw them get arrested the day before, telling them, yeah, they arrested us, they put us in jail, but you know, this angel came and he freed us, and so we just like walked out. What do you mean you walked out? Well, we just walked out. Nobody said anything? No, like we just like, we looked around and the guard was like, I mean, it was like Buckingham Palace. Like he didn't move. Like it was crazy. And then we just like kept walking, and like he just didn't chase us. So we just walked out. Craziest thing ever. And so these these temple guards walk up, and they're like, "Okay, this is a little weird. Don't know what's gonna happen. People are really bought into this. So, excuse me, um, Mr. Peter, uh, sir, could you uh, could could you come with us, please? That be that would be great. Uh, oh, thank you, thank you, sir." They're afraid that they're going to get lynched by the mob because of what had happened. So they're afraid they're going to get stoned. What happened was that the religious leaders were starting to be seen as defying God for their treatment of the apostles, and they knew it. And they were fighting for control over the people. But God had already started to turn the hearts of the people toward the truth of the gospel. When God's moving in our lives, other people will take Notice. There will be a natural opposition to the truth because the truth is provocative. But the testimony of God's word is that the opposition leads to an opportunity to be be courageous. The apostles prayed for God to give them boldness, and in response, wouldn't you know it, God gave them an opportunity to be bold. So if you pray for boldness, if you pray for faithfulness, if you pray for patience, if you pray for for, um, obedience, Guess what God is going to do? He's going to provide you with opportunities for all those things. Be careful what you pray for because God will provide it to you. The way that we learn things is that God allows us to go through things so that we can experience the goodness of the truth. Well, this criticism leads to a boldness that leads to courage. Look at these next couple of verses, starting in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the Sanhedrin, that's the religious council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly commanded you not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Notice there's no mention about how they got out of jail. This dude just jumped straight into business. God answered their prayers for boldness and confidence. You know, what's interesting is that sinful people are afraid of the truth they were afraid of they. These these religious leaders were afraid of what the apostles were saying that Jesus was really the Messiah and that they had killed them. What is fascinating here is that they're they're concerned that the, that the the blame of who killed Jesus is going to be on them. And yet we learn from Matthew's account of the gospel that when Pilate said his blood is on you, I'm washing my hands. They literally said, Yes, it's on us. Let it be on us. And they spent a large sum of money trying to cover up the resurrection of Christ. Matthew 28 tells us that. That they bribed the guards who were guarding Jesus' tomb to cover up the fact that He was resurrected. These guys can't make up their mind. They've been playing political games all their lives and they don't know what the truth is. The statement, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood on us implies that they were trying to not be associated with the murder of Jesus. But, you know, here's the thing is that facts don't care about your feelings. But Peter, look at verse 29. I love Peter. Talk about a man who's bold. Verse 29, he says, But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree. This one God exalted to his right hand as a leader and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so the Holy Spirit, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God gave to those who obey Him. There's a couple of things right here that Peter and the apostles couldn't help but obey God. They had think about what they what they had experienced. They'd experienced God move in incredible ways. Have you ever tried to convince someone who has really walked with God that they're crazy, that they should stop chasing Jesus when they've experienced the Almighty power of God transforming their life? You look at somebody who's been walking with Jesus or loves the Bible, and you're like, man, that guy's crazy. What is up with that? And you try to you try to change their mind. Yeah, you know, I don't really know. Bible's kind of just, you know, it's kind of one way to look at the world. It's all up, inter- up to interpretation, whatever. No, you talk to somebody who has walked with Jesus and experienced real life with God, and there is nothing that you can say that's going to change their mind. Because it's real. It is absolutely, fundamentally real. Peter and the other apostles had walked with Jesus himself. They had seen miracles done. They had done miracles with Jesus. And now they're seeing God move in all these incredible ways. And the Sanhedrin are saying, we told you to not speak the name of Jesus. But Peter says, listen, you don't know who you're talking about. They couldn't help it. They had to obey God rather than man. The work that God had done since Pentecost had solidified their resolve to press forward in spite of the opposition of the religious leaders. There's some things that Peter says that's important. The first is that Jesus was not alone, that he was raised up by the God of our fathers. He is claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Old Testament Messiah who had been prophesied to come and redeem the world. He's telling these these religious leaders that the God that you claim that you serve is actually on our side. You are the false prophets here. You are the false teachers here. He says, this same Jesus was raised up by God, the God of our fathers. He says that he was sent by God to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Think about this. Think about where where they had come from. When they first met Jesus, they thought he was going to be a military leader. They thought he he was going to throw off all the oppression of the Romans. They thought that he was going to redeem the power and the might, the military might of Israel. Peter, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, is so overcome thinking the rebellion is coming that when they come to arrest Jesus, he draws a sword and he cuts off a man's ear. But now we're here. Something is different. Something is majorly different. Because it's not about restoring some physical kingdom. It's about forgiving sins. It's about changing lives. It's about granting repentance. It's about redeeming a people who are broken. There are many people who falsely think that, that pursuing Jesus, pursuing the hope of the gospel, is just simply to give, give our lives more comfort, to give us more of, a, of, a, of an easy life, to relieve some of the stress, to provide some financial benefits. No. Shallow thinking. He says that he came to grant repentance. And then Peter says, not only did he do those things, but he and his companions are witnesses of these things. But notice that his testimony is not the only thing that he leans on. He says, but so is the Holy Spirit. Peter's not taking any credit for any miracles. He's not taking credit for any of the movement of God. He is not taking any credit for anything. He's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit witnessed this and has testified that this is true. He is so courageous in what he has to say because he understands that God is the one who's moving. He also understands that God gave the holy spirit to those who obey him what he's saying is that anyone who doesn't have the holy spirit does not believe in God there is a uh, a common heresy in our generation that Jesus can be the lord of your life or your savior but not your lord that you can be saved but not have the Holy Spirit. Not true. When God saves us, He saves us comprehensively. He saves us totally. Jesus cannot be our our Savior and not our Master. He is one and the same. His Spirit gives testimony that we are changed, that we are being changed. A child of God cannot, cannot refuse the influence of the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying here to the Sanhedrin is that they are spiritually dead and they have no inheritance in God. None. These men who have built their whole lives on being godly people are empty. Courage comes from knowing the truth. And once it's been proven to you, there is no amount of convincing that will change it. What the apostles had grown to understand was that God had had not only heard their prayers, but He had provided the testimony that they needed to fuel their courage. And so their boldness... Not only was there an opportunity for them to be able to see God move and to be able to to spread the gospel. Not only did He give them courage to be able to live it out, but He also gave them confidence. Their boldness led to confidence. Look at these last several verses. So look at how the the religious leaders respond. And when they heard this, they became furious and intended to kill them. Now these guys were mad. In some translations, it says they were cut. To the quick. That word literally means in Greek that they to be cut in half. This is a natural response to the revelation of who God is, to truth. You either you're going to get a number of responses. You're going to get either indifference where someone will hear, they're like, Meh, okay, I'm a sinner. I need God. Great. Or the ideal is that they're going to hear the truth of the gospel, they're going to be convicted in their heart, and they're going to yield themselves to God. They're going to lay down their rebellion, and God will begin to redeem their life. But the third option is that they meet the truth with hostility. You know these people, I know you do, in your life. You bring up God, you bring up Jesus, you bring up faith, you bring up religion of any kind, and they are ready to throw a punch. This is a natural response of a sinful heart to the truth. If someone is bound up and they are determined to undermine the the spreading of the gospel, it indicates to you that they are not children of God. It says, they were cut to the heart. Look at verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Now, Gamaliel is is a small personality within the Bible. He is—he's uh, known as a teacher of teachers. He—he he is the guy who discipled Saul before he became the apostle Paul. This guy is very prominent in the Hebrew in the Hebrew uh, religious culture of the time. So he stands up, this older man, this sage, this, this wise person. He says, "Tell you what, we need a break. Let's set, let's set these guys outside. Listen to his advice." Verse thirty-five, and he said to them, "Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men." For some time ago, Thudius, or Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of, the, of about 400 men joined up with him, and he was killed. And all who were following him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, after this man, Judas the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away people after him. He too perished, and all those who were following him were scattered. So, the, so in the present case, I also say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if the plan of action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it, is, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or you may even be found fighting against God. What's fascinating here is that Gamaliel never comes to faith in Christ. We don't, we don't have any evidence that he ever made a profession or yielded himself to Christ. He's a, he is a, uh, he's speaking in his own his own ignorance rejecting just dismissing this moment saying ah if it's of god it'll be it you won't be able to stop it but if it's a man it'll die out he's not telling them to take any action whatsoever but he speaks a prophecy that they're trying to that if they stand in the way of the apostles they're standing in the way of god that's fascinating to me Verse 40. So they followed his advice, and after calling the apostles in and beating them, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. And, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So he says, Listen, we need to turn them loose. Man. You know, one of the challenging things about leadership is waiting to see what God's going to do with people. I know that I've been frustrated with mentors in the past where they don't seem like they move very fast. And it's like, you know, if you just, if you just would just have that conversation with that person, if you would just, you know, do the thing, we can get this thing over with. But a wise teacher will say, wait. One of Nick Dyer's thing that he tells me all the time? Be a golden retriever. Leave it. Leave it. Let God work it out. And it happens. That's what Camellio is saying. You need to leave this alone. See what happens. So they followed his advice. But we'll find out that they don't, they can't help themselves. It says that they beat the apostles. What they would do back then, according to the law, is that they w- they, w- they weren't allowed to beat someone 40 times, so they w- they would they would do 40 times minus one, so 39 times, and they would take either a cane, a rod, or they would take a, a leather strap that had um, a bunch of other straps at the end of it that had they had attached different things, rocks and sharp pieces of glass and pottery and different things, and they would whip people with those. That's what they whipped Jesus with, by the way. So they whipped them, they beat them. But notice their response. Remember, they prayed for boldness in Acts chapter 4. They prayed that God would give them the strength and the courage to step forward and speak the truth. As the apostles went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, they didn't respond in shame, but instead they rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. What the enemy meant to crush their spirits actually gave them energy. Let me ask this question of you. When was the last time that you lost something because of your faith and you praised God for it? When was the last time that you had to release something or that God uh, provided a, a, a moment of punishment, a persecution just so that you could be put on display. and you thanked him for it. We, honestly, I know that the good stuff, the fun stuff, the warm fuzzy stuff, makes us feel good. And it should make us feel good. But we have to understand as we as we walk with Christ, that the warm fuzzy stuff, God take God providing this resource for that bill that came or God doing this really cool thing or God doing this really cool thing. We should get the same enjoyment from those things as we do from glorifying God in our own persecution. We should be excited that God would allow us the privilege of being bold and courageous. We don't cower in fear. We should celebrate the things that God does and the opportunities that he provides for us to be able to put the gospel on display. What's happening with the apostles here is that they, they, they've they got to share in a small little piece of what Jesus did. For the first time, imagine this, imagine this. The the 12 of them, as they inspected each other's wounds, would be able to, for the first time, say, the master had this one. The master had this stripe. The master had this bruise. The master was missing this piece of his hair after it was torn out. And they celebrated it. Not because they were masochists and they loved to be in pain, but because they understood, I am worthy. God has chosen me to live this life. That these difficulties that I'm facing are not an obstacle for me to get over. This persecution that I'm enduring is not something that God has given me just just so I can endure it, but so that I can experience the fullness of his grace. That in spite of my struggles, that in spite of my hardship, that in spite of my pain and my my ridicule, that I get to share in the greatness of who he was. That God provides me with the opportunity to be able to, to, when people ask me, hey, how are you doing with that hard situation? For me then to be able to turn around and say, you know what? This really sucks, but God is good. One of my favorite people in the world is a guy who goes to church here. He's had cancer multiple times. He's had broken bones. He's had all kinds of hardship. You ask him, how you doing, Randy? It's all good. God's got this. As he's walking in a walker, Another one of my favorite people is a guy named Don Hushbeck. Don was injured in an industrial accident. He had some steel fall on him at work. He's an engineer by trade. Now he's paralyzed from the waist down, and he's in a motorized chair. Most of the time, if you see him in worship, he has to lean his chair back so far to relieve the pressure from his legs just so he can relieve some of his pain. So he sits there and he listens to the the message, completely horizontal and sometimes inverted. And yet you know what? When we sing songs of praise to the Lord, guess who's the loudest person? Guess who's excited about the truth of God's Word? Guess who is hungry to disciple men and to know the truth? Our obstacles are not something that we are supposed to just get past. Our obstacles are a platform that God has given us to be able to display the goodness of who He is the richness of who He is. Is it any wonder that the Bible is full of examples of, of God's people in a situation where they need help, they need Him to come through? And it's not about the deliverance, it's about His relationship with His people. The primary focus of these disciples was to teach and proclaim the good news of the gospel. It says that they, after this persecution, that that every day in the temple and from the house to house, they did not cease teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. You know, we've gone from a uh, uh, guys who who were who were concerned about a, a political rebellion, a military rebellion, and now they've turned and they are actively speaking truth. And they've laid aside all ambition of military takeover. They've laid, laid, laid aside all political motives. And they just want people to know Jesus. Confidence is a byproduct of knowing and understanding God's love for us. Because His love is perfect. And it overcomes fear. In our generation, we find ourselves fearful when the enemy distracts us either from what we know about God's love or by keeping us ignorant of it. When we are afraid, it's because we have lost sight of the truth. Here's the message for tonight. You may be one of many people who struggles with anxiety, with fear, with difficulty, with your own brain space. My message to you you tonight is that the hope of the gospel is not just about forgiving your sins. The hope of the gospel is is, is about a transformed mind. A mind that has been disciplined and brought into the actual design that God has for it. We should not be content to stay where we are. The lie that it's okay to to, to not be okay is not true. If it was okay to not be okay, that means that God would be content with leaving you where you are. And that's not real. God is not content to leave you to suffer. He is not content to leave you in in a dark room when you're crying out for, for perspective and relief. He is a good Father. He does not leave us in the dark. And when we walk in fear, when we walk in anxiety, what we have to do is we have to pray that He would turn on the light. We need to understand that we have been built on purpose to need God. And apart from Him, that is the source of anxiety and depression and anger, and fear. But in God there is love, and there is joy, and there is peace, and there is patience and kindness, and there is goodness, and faithfulness and self-control. The product of a godly life is not fear. The product of a godly life is confidence. My prayer for us as a community is that we would be a people who are bold, but not just bold in our prayers. That we would be bold in our obedience. That as God provides us with opportunities, both individually through our struggles and corporately as a group, that we we would work together to encourage each other. Why is it important for you to spend time with God's people? Why is it that all the old people always tell you, you need to be in church, you need to be in church, you need to be at REACH, you need to be at Sunday school? Because Hebrews tells us that being together encourage each other encourages each other to love remember love casts out fear love and good works how do we live the Christian life we do it together we can't do it on our own and we can't do it casually may we be a people who embrace the truth who pray for boldness, and live courageously when we are provided the opportunity. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor to young Adult at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to REACH. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and the sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.